you to take your Bibles and look with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28, and then we'll skip over a couple of chapters after we look through some of these verses in chapter 28 to chapter 31. And I'm going to share a message with you today that I've titled, He Did Not Live Happily Ever after. We have been walking through the life of King David, and we are coming to a point now to where we're, we're seeing that the, the, the mantle, so to speak, is going to be passed, the crown is going to be transferred. But as we have looked thus far through this, what we have seen is that the people of Israel are searching for someone to bring them security, and they're looking to, for someone to bring them prosperity and to give them them some safety, and, and they believe that by having a king like all the other nations, they, they think if they can just get a king that they'll have that safety, they'll have that security. They are chasing a crown, and in the very same way, you and I do the very same things. We are looking for something in this life to give us safety and security. We're looking for something to guarantee us prosperity and to guarantee us blessing. We're looking for something to make our lives meaningful. We too are chasing a crown. We're looking for that something. We are seeking a king. And that began for Israel when they demanded this man by the name of Saul. And we're going to see today the very tragic end of his life. And we're going to see how he, when he was followed by the people, ended up being a complete disaster, how he did not fulfill what they longed to receive, how he was not the king that they were seeking. And I think we'll see some, some pointings toward Jesus Christ as we look through this text. Let's go ahead and jump in. First Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 3. It tells us that Samuel, that's the prophet, Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned with him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul, this is important, and Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Now, the mediums were those who communicated with the spirits. The necromancers were people who would talk to the dead. So this is a good thing that Saul is doing. He's getting rid of demon worship. Verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the armies of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. A hallmark, a theme of Saul's life was fear. Verse 6 tells us, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Let me stop here just a second. Urim, that is the Old Testament equivalent of what we would think, and I 
this is not the right term, but it's the best term I can come up with. It's the Old Testament equivalent of what we would think of as the magic eight ball. You know, a little thing you shake and it shows up. Well, scholars tell us that actually that the, the Urim actually had another part to it called the, the Thummim, and there were two rocks. And on each side of the rock were the words yes and no. And so what would happen is that the, if, if a leader had a question, they would go to the priest and God would supernaturally guide this process. So they would throw the rocks, and yes, yes meant go for it. No, no meant don't go for it. Yes, no meant God is not giving a clear direction. And here, what the verse is telling us is that God supernaturally was intentionally not giving Saul the answer. He was not providing Saul this outlet that Saul was looking for. Now understand, do not leave here today and go eat your Father's Day lunch and find two rocks in the parking lot and throw it and say, the pastor said I could do this, okay? I'm not encouraging this is an Old Testament way that's done away with in the New Testament, but God is supernaturally not giving Saul an answer. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, <clears throat> how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? What caliber a sorceress is this? She can supposedly see the future, but she can't see through the costume of the guy in front of her? She's not that sharp of a sorceress. This is no Dion Warwick, Okay. Verse 10, <clears throat> y'all lighten up this morning, come on, help me. <clears throat> but Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, now he's bringing God into it, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I was having a good time. Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? 
The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn out the kingdom from your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. Saul has never really repented of doing things his way. You see, God will abundantly pardon our sin, but we have to come to God on his terms. Verse 19, moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. You're going to die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. Saul, don't miss this, is crying out to God, but he's not crying out for God. And there's a big difference. Saul is crying out for God to get him out of a jam. He's not coming to God on his terms. He's trying to come to God on his own terms. In a crisis, we become desperate. We become gullible and we will grab hold of anything to get us out of the jam we're in or to keep us going. We're not necessarily trusting God or surrendering to his plan. And proof of that, if you've ever done this, and if you haven't done this, you're lying. If you say you haven't, you're lying. Uh, you, you've got into a situation, you said, God, if you will get me out of this, I promise I will do this. And as soon, God gets, as, soon as God gets you out of it, you forget to do what you said you were going to do, or you don't do it for very long. That's the heart of Saul. Wanting God to get him out of a situation, he doesn't want God for himself. Look at how his life ends. Look over in chapter 31. In chapter 31, now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised, these Philistines, come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, happy Father's Day, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. 
And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Admittedly, this does not create the warm, fuzzy feelings that we expect to experience when we come to church, especially on Father's Day. But I don't write the mail. I just deliver it, okay? Keep that in mind. Look at how tragic his life ends. Israel wanted a king because they did not trust God to meet their needs. They thought that Saul would be the perfect king, but he turns out to be a coward that consults demons in a time of trouble. He doesn't defeat the Philistines. In fact, he loses ground to the Philistines. They are now living in cities that he once ruled. His last act is to watch his son's die, and then he takes his own life. His armor is stripped, and it's put on display in the temple of the false god Ashtaroth as a testimony of how strong the Philistine false god was, and his body was fastened to a wall by the Philistines to hang in shame. It is impossible for the Bible to give a more devastating end to a life. And the irony is that this happens within earshot of the place where he was coronated as king. In fact, when he was coronated as king back in chapter 10, just listen, I want to read it to you real quick. It's just one verse. Back in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, when they placed him as king, oh, the hopes were so high and everybody was so excited because Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies and this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Oh, everything started off so well. Everything, the promise was so great but it ended in utter disappointment in the same place where these glorious promises were spoken over Paul, now, or Saul rather, now hangs his body in shame. And so this morning I want to take Saul's life because this is the important thing to learn from this. Saul's problem wasn't the Philistines. Saul's problem wasn't Goliath. Saul's problem was Saul. Saul's problem was that his heart never fully trusted God. So let me quickly, briefly, make three statements about his life. The man who did not live happily ever after. The first statement is this. Saul chose religion over relationship. 
He chose religion over relationship. He did some religious things. He observed some religious practices, but he never knew God in relationship. He did some good things. He purged the land of Harry Potter. He got rid of the witches and the wizards. He was on God's team when they went and fought in battle. He prayed to God when he was in a jam. Today, if Saul was here today, he would be sitting in a sanctuary. He would maybe be teaching a Sunday school class. He'd be serving on a committee because I'm sure they had committees back here in the Old Testament since we have so many of them today. He would, uh, he would be going on mission trips. He would be doing all these religious things. He would help with VBS. He would be very religious in his activity. But for all the good that he did, he was missing a couple of things. You see, Saul never trusted God. We know this because he failed to obey. Saul was never convinced that God was trustworthy. And when you don't think that God is trustworthy, you will not obey him. In fact, there is a, uh, the, uh, a, a companion book. First Chronicles is a parallel book to 1 Samuel. And 1 Chronicles, and you'll see the verse on the screen, 1 Chronicles shows us the main problem Saul had. 1 Chronicles 10, 13, 14 says that Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Saul never trusted God. This is why he does not live happily ever after. This is why his life ends in such disgrace. He had the outward signs, but inside there was no real relationship with God. You see, it wasn't just that he didn't trust God. Saul was never satisfied in God. God was never enough for Saul. God made him king, but Saul said, I want to build a monument to myself. Saul, God gave him riches, and Saul always wanted more. He was never satisfied with what God was doing in his life. And his life teaches us this important lesson. If you do not grasp these two realities, trust in God and satisfaction in God, you cannot know God relationally no matter how religious you are. For you see, knowing God is not about what you can do. Knowing God is about what God has done. You hear me? Knowing God is not about what you can manufacture. Knowing God is not about doing religious things. Knowing God is comprehending and embracing and accepting not what you do for God, but what God has done for you and how he feels about you. Don't be like Saul. Don't make it to where when a preacher stands behind a pulpit at your funeral that they have to lie about how you chose Jesus over religion. Don't be like Saul. Don't allow religion to replace relationship. The second statement I'll make about Saul's life is this. He never offered to God true repentance. He never offered to God true repentance. Oh, he appeared repentant on the outside. He said he was sorry. 
How many of you parents, all right, dads, as fathers, let's make this applicable. How many of you dads, you, you've had to discipline your children, they were like, I'm sorry, and you were thinking, you're lying through your teeth right now. Anybody? Okay, I can only speak for my two. <laughs> and, and we've done it as well. And Saul said he was sorry. Saul went through the motions, but he never really repented. My, my goal here is not to, to scare you, but rather to wake you up. Saul went through the motions of repentance. He, he, he had some confession, he had some prayer, he, he had some religious activity, but he never really dealt with his sin. His sin was his failure to trust God enough to fully surrender himself to him. His sin was his failure to value God enough to be satisfied with him. So then, if this is the statement of his life that, that he never offered God true repentance, how can I know if I have offered God true? It's a fair question. How Can I know? And if so, how can I know that I've offered God true repentance? Again, not to scare you, just to wake you up. When you look at Saul's life or the things not present in his life and the totality of Scripture, let me make a, a couple of comments. See, true repentance leads to changed behavior. True repentance leads to changed behavior. Real repentance isn't shown in emotions. It is shown in a changed life. And Saul's life never really changed. Your mouth might say you believe in Jesus, but my question to you is this. What does your life say? You see, the most solid way to see whether you have repented is to look at your life. And it really boils down to this. If there has been no change, there's been no Jesus. Because when Jesus moves in, sin has to go somewhere. When Jesus invades your life, something has to change, and true repentance will lead to changed behavior. But true repentance also involves godly sorrow. Are you sorry for your sin, or are you sorry that you got caught? <laughs> are, are you sorry that you've grieved God? Or are you sorry that you now have to suffer the consequences of your foolish actions? Not all sorrow symbolizes repentance. There is a sorrow that can cry over sin, but it's not of God. It's sorrow of shame, or it's sorrow of self-pity, or it's sorrow of getting caught. That is not repentance that leads to salvation. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, whereas worldly sorrow produces death. There's a difference in godly sorrow and repentance. And true repentance always involves godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is sorrow about what your sin has done to God, and that sorrow results in a change of attitude towards sin, which results in a change of behavior. But also understand this, that true repentance refuses to offer conditional obedience 
or partial compliance. And I promise you, if you sin, I try not to point fingers, I try to extend hands because I, I want the whole hand to extend back to me. If there's anyone in this room who is an expert at conditional obedience and partial compliance, you're looking at him, you're, you're hearing him. Conditional obedience. God, I'll do this if you'll do that. Partial compliance. God, I'll obey you in one area, but I don't want to obey you in all areas. That's not true repentance. True repentance refuses to offer God that conditional obedience, that partial compliance. Real repentance is this. Real repentance is fully trusting God and being completely satisfied with God that leads to an unconditional surrender to God. Saul never repented in that way, have you? So about Saul's life, we can say that he chose religion over relationship. We can say that he never offered God true repentance. But the third thing I'll say is the saddest about his life. Saul died a sinner's death. He died a sinner's death. Remember when we read in chapter 31 that he fell on his own sword. And later they took his armor but they hung his body in shame. He died in shame of sin without God. That's a sinner's death. A sinner's death is when someone dies in the shame of their sin without God. This is how Saul died. The sinner's death is death without God's presence in that person's life. And if I were to stop the message right now, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but if I were to stop the message right now, close our Bibles, and we go home, I readily admit I have not given you anything to go home to celebrate today. Maybe that's why some of you will look at me so heavily this morning. Maybe why, that is why there is a heavy sense in this place is because nothing we've talked about so far has been very joyful. But get ready to turn your frown upside down. Because while this is happening with Saul, and while from the outside perspective looking in, it all looks dark, it all looks bleak, even while this is taking place, there is hope. Because while Saul is falling upon his sword, and while Saul is having his armor displayed in the temple of a false god, and while the ungodly are joyfully gleeing over his demise, and while his body is being pinned up to the wall of a city, while all of that is taking place, God is preparing another king. You don't see him yet, you will, but you don't see him yet. He's preparing another king in the shadows. His name is King David. And the irony is that it's only through Saul's death, Israel's ultimate shame, it's only through Saul's death 
that the way was prepared for David, God's chosen king, and the hope of salvation. But all of this, don't miss me here, but tune in for just a couple more minutes. All of this is intended to point us to one other place, and I'll give you a hint. His name rhymes with Jesus. Jesus. All of this, all of this is intended to point us not to a human king, but to God's ultimate king, Jesus Christ, who's going to come to the throne in a similar way. The part of Saul is going to be played by us. We, like Saul, have rejected God's lordship. We, like Saul, have refused to fully trust him and to fully delight in him. And because of our rebellion. We are condemned to die Saul's death. We are condemned to die a sinner's death. But Jesus came, the perfect king, the ultimate king. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And Jesus died very much like Saul. Saul was a king of Israel. Jesus was called the king of the Jews. Saul was fascinated to a wall. Jesus was fastened to a cross. Saul's enemies triumphed over his death. Jesus' enemies did the very same thing. Saul was stripped of his armor and mocked. Jesus was stripped of his clothing and mocked. But here's the big difference. Saul died because of his rebellion and his sin. Jesus did not die for his rebellion but mine. Jesus did not die for his sin, but for ours. Saul had to die in order for salvation to come to Israel through King David. Jesus had to die in order for salvation to come through himself to the entire world. For David to take the throne, Saul had to die. For Jesus to take the throne, he had to die Saul's death for us. The problem we face this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is not the Philistines. The problem we face this morning is not Goliath. The problem we face is the heart of Saul that is in each of us. But Jesus put away the Saul in us by dying Saul's death for us, by dying our death. And when we receive his death for us, that gives us peace with God. Amen. Jesus died the sinner's death so that we would never have to. He died Saul's death so I would never have to. I don't know many things. But I do know this one thing. There is a day that I will die. There's a day this heart will stop beating. There's a day my lungs will stop filling with air. There's a day, I won't say my brain's working great right now, but there's a day my brain won't work at all. It'll shut down. And there'll be a day that I physically die. 
And I don't mean to sound arrogant. And I don't mean to sound bravado or anything else. Honest to God. I'm not worried about that day. Not one bit. Oh, there are things I like to do. There are more sermons I like to preach. There's more of your smiling faces. I love smiling faces I love to see. But that day of my death, I'm not really that worried about it. For you see, another thing I know is that I will die physically. But I will never die spiritually. There'll never be a time when the presence of God is from my life. And that's not because I'm a preacher. And that's not because I drive the speed limit, because I don't. And it's not because I treat everybody like Jesus would at the red light here at Stewardship, at Stewart Street and Highway 90. It's because many years ago, I simply asked Jesus to do something for my sin. I simply said, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I admit to you that I'm a sinner. And I want you to save me. That's it. At that moment, I was given eternal life to where my physical death is coming for all of us. Come today, come tomorrow. I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because it's just going to be the vehicle that gets me out of this world. It takes me into the presence of Jesus because Jesus died Saul's death for me. And he died it for you. Has there ever been a time in your life when you cried out to Jesus? When you simply said to him as best you know how that you believe he died for your sins? Has there ever been a time you've admitted your sin to him? Has there ever been a time you confessed, Lord, yes, I admit, I agree with you, I am a sinner. Has there ever been a time that you simply asked him to save you? If so, the sinner's death has been paid for you just like it's been paid for me. And my last day on this earth is going to be my first day in heaven. If you've never offered a prayer like that to Jesus, it's not just physical death you're going to die, it's spiritual death. And I'd rather die a million times infinity physically than one time spiritually. Because the spiritual death condemns me to hell where I'm forever separated from Jesus. The saddest thing in all of this world is that for every person who's suffering in hell today, not one single person had to go there. Not one. You don't either. So if you don't, why? <laughs> if you don't have to go, why would you want to? Would you turn your heart to Jesus today? In just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing.
this altar will be open for you to pray if you have made a decision today for Jesus. We would love to celebrate that with you and celebrate that by rejoicing with you. If you need to pray for someone today who needs Jesus in their life, pray for them either in this altar right where you are. Maybe God's placed upon your heart that your next step is to follow his example by being baptized and, and you have questions about that. We, we will be glad to talk with you about that. Maybe God's calling you to do so. I don't know what God has placed upon your heart in this hour we've been in here today. But I know that God's desire is for you to simply lay your yes on the table to whatever he's calling you to do. So after I pray and as we stand and sing, you have the opportunity, if you're in your pew in this altar, wherever God leads you to do it, to take the next step God's calling you to take. Father God, I thank you that Jesus died the sinner's death even though he was not a sinner. He died that sinner's death for me so that I, being a sinner, would never have to die that death. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone here in this room today who's never made the decision to make Jesus their Lord and Savior, that in this moment they would cry out to you for salvation. Whatever you're placing upon our heart today, help us to say yes. Help us to put our yes before you and you can give us direction in what step to take from there. Have your will and your way in my life. Have it in the life of each person here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.